Well, this is it. We're down to the uh, last night of this meeting, and it's been a short week, uh, from my perspective at least, and we really enjoyed it. I'll have a, want to just say a few words, preliminary words, before we get into the lesson, so that we can concentrate on the lesson a little later. But if I don't say them now, I may forget them before the end of the lesson. And I reserve the right, of course, if I forget something, to come back to the end of the lesson and splice that in. But uh, I want to say, first of all, that I appreciate the invitation to start with, to be able to be here and to be with you for this week. It's been a real joy for us uh, to get to know some that we've known the past better and some we had not known in the past to just get to know them. And it's been a real privilege on our part. It was good to stay with uh, Stephen and Sharon. Uh, they treated us just like we was at home. Uh, they handed us a baby and then they say, take him and do this and that. So that's the way we like it. And we, we've enjoyed the week. We're sorry that uh, the little one has been sick part of the week, but he seems to be doing better, and we're glad he is. Uh, thank you very much for the hospitality. Uh, we've had good food. We've enjoyed it. I enjoy good food. Whether it was in your home or you took us out to eat, it's still good food. And we have enjoyed that week uh, of eating, and just but we enjoy more. To just to have the association and to be able to talk together, and that's been uh, a great privilege on our part. Uh, if you're ever over our way uh, in just north of Birmingham, we'd like to repay you some way for your hospitality. If you're going north on I-65, you get off at the 75 or the 80 exit and give them a call. We're just about uh, four miles from either one of those exits. So we'd be glad to have you. Give me a call and come as many of you would like to come. Bring anything you want to eat and we'll have a good meal. But, <laughs> but we are uh, pleased uh, to have had a part in this gospel meeting. Uh, you know it's just not very hard to preach when you've got folks who are listening. And I'll have to commend the brethren here. They've listened well. And I felt like each night that everyone was with me as far as listening is concerned. Whether or not they always agreed, I don't know. But they listen and listen well. And that always, if you want to kill a preacher, just listen well and you'll preach himself to death. But we're just happy to have had the opportunity to be with you. Uh, it's good to see the Henderson, the part of the Henderson clan. They're kind of like the Brackwells, there's so many of them, we just say the clan. But we're glad to uh, see them and we've known them for some time. Uh, if you will, tonight, we've been talking about uh, Christ, uh, the man Jesus Christ, and we've talked about various aspects of his uh, work in his office as the Christ, and we've gotten down to this final lesson, which we call Jesus, the author of salvation. Uh, if you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9 to begin with. Though he were a son, he learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. 
Then back up in Hebrews just a little bit, back up to the second chapter, and we'll begin with verse 1 of that second chapter. Therefore we ought to give a more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing the witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It says that salvation first began to be spoken by the Lord. And it said in the first uh, text that he is the author of the salvation. Not only did he preach, uh, speak it or preach it first, he was the very author of it. Uh, he's the author in every way that you can possibly think of. He's the author of salvation as far as the cause of our salvation is concerned. He's the author of salvation as far as being the designer of our salvation. And he's also the author of our uh, salvation by being the executor of it. He, he planned it, he caused it, and he designed it, and he executed it. And thus he can be said that he became the author of eternal salvation to all them uh, that believe on him. I want to go back to this Hebrews chapter 2. And tonight we're going to notice some of the descriptions of that salvation and see if it might make us appreciate a little bit more than maybe that we would otherwise uh, what we have in Christ Jesus as a Savior and what that salvation means to us. But we, there's certain words in that text that I want to focus on as we talk about uh, Jesus Christ as being the author of our salvation. The first description that we note is the word great. Uh, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, why is it great? Well, it's great because of the author of it. For no other reason, it would be a great salvation because it was authored by God, authored by Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God. And we couldn't save ourselves. No way that that could happen. And we certainly we can't save ourselves. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for it. And one of them is we cannot author or could not author our salvation. There's no way that I'd have the ability, no way that I would have the means, and no way would I have the, uh, uh, the material necessary in order to author or to originate our design salvation because I'm not divine because I'm not God but he's the author Jesus Christ being God in the flesh is said to be the author of eternal salvation but it's also great because of its benefits uh, the Hebrew writer along with other uh, passages point out the benefit that we have from the salvation we one of the first benefits of course is obvious is by that salvation we are saved from sin. Lost in sin in the world, alienated from God, alienated from God's people, uh, alienated from God himself. 
And now we've been saved from that condition. We are taken out of that world of sin and taken into the world of those who are saved or those who are saints. So he saved us from sin and made us saints. That's one of the great things about the salvation. And uh, for the alien sinner out there, uh, he tells us very succinctly in a number of places what we have to do in order to leave that world and to get into the world of Christ himself. In Acts 2.38, the Apostle Peter on the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was speaking to Jewish people. But they were Jewish people, but they were alienated from God. Uh, these people had not even kept the law and had, that they were under, of course, not having kept the law they were under. He had declared that all were sinners. And so these people were alienated from God. They were in the world, and he told them what they needed to do in order to uh, remedy that situation. And so he saved them from sin, from the guilt of sin, on that day by giving them the forgiveness of their sins. When the uh, audience, the Jewish audience, there understood that they were sinners and what great sinners they were. Uh, and he pointed that out by the fact that they had taken this Jesus and they had crucified him uh, and they had uh, caused his death to happen upon the cross and that was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that they were familiar with. And when he got through with that, he, uh, he didn't even have, if somebody says he didn't even have to sing meditation song. Some of them said, men and brethren, what must we do? And he told them very uh, succinctly, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. So they were to repent of the sin they were in. They were to be baptized, every one of them, uh, in the name of Christ for the remission of sins. And if they would do that, they would be saved from sin, and they would, of course, be saved by the author of salvation. That would be Jesus himself. And notice in the text, he says you're to repent and be baptized, both of them. Uh, if repentance is necessary for the remission of sins, baptism is also necessary because they go together. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Then when Saul of Tarsus, who had been a persecutor of the church, when he was told by Ananias what he needed to do as an alien sinner, uh, one who was outside of Christ, he says, Now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So he was to be baptized, to wash away sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So he's, those people who are out there in the world, alienated from God, separated from God by their sin. They were able to find salvation by simply meeting the terms of salvation of forgiveness on the part of uh, the terms given by the Christ when he said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized should be saved. But also, even after one has done that, and after he has uh, become a Christian, a babe in Christ, the, it's not a matter of if he'll sin again, it's a matter of when he'll sin again. Because once one has, 
even though he's had his sins forgiven, he's not made immune to sin. That That's not a shot of, of immunization like you give for a shot of some disease. They're not immune for of it. They still are subject to temptation, and they're still human beings, and they were still, at times, they would uh, sin again. Well, they didn't have to be baptized again. They, uh, that was not necessary. But they w had to do something else. I know, uh, I may have, t I don't remember whether earlier in this meeting I've told this story or not, but it, it illustrates it anyway. Uh, Brother Bunning, Brother Bob Bunning, was up in the Carolinas. And he was in a meeting up there. And a man came forward on Monday night to be baptized. This is a true story. Uh, to be baptized. And uh, he evidently understood what he needed to do. From what, and they're talking to him. And uh, he understood he needed to repent of his sins and uh, all of that. And they baptized him. And then Friday night, when the invitation song was extended here, he came again. And they thought, well, since it's a baby in Christ, they may not understand. Also, they would take him aside and talk to him a little bit about it, that he didn't have to be baptized again uh, in order to uh, have his sins forgiven. If he'd sinned since Monday when he was baptized, he didn't have to do that. There's other remedy for that sin now. But he said, but Brother Bunny, he says, I have been so bad. He says, I don't think one time I'll do it. Uh, well, uh, one time just doesn't do it as far as immune, one from sin. One is going to sin from time to time. Well, there's a remedy for that, and Jesus is the author of that salvation as well. That salvation from falling away to coming back. In uh, 1 John chapter 1, he's speaking to the children of God and to those who are Christians. And he says, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That's verse 7 of chapter 1 of 1 John. Uh, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But we ask the question right there when he says, and it cleanses us from all sin, is that conditional or unconditional? Well, we'll notice that in just a moment. But anyway, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And he's still talking to Christians. And the truth is not in us. But he says, if we, we who, we who are Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, confessing sin there involves also repentance of sin. And so if we are faithful to uh, confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us. Then it says we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. Then the first verse of the next chapter it goes on to say, My little children, these things are right unto you that you sin not. He said, My purpose to write it is to keep you from sinning. But it says, And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's still the author of our salvation. He still will take away that sin. And he takes it away, not on the condition here of baptism, but on the condition of repenting and confessing our sins, asking his forgiveness, and receive that forgiveness. And we are still cleansed again as we were when we were baptized to begin with. So he's the author of eternal salvation to both the alien sinner, the alien sinner being one who's never been a Christian, and to the Christian as well when he sins. And not only that, but we are saved for a better life even here. Uh, 
it's not an easy life, but it's a better life. Uh, we're told that it's not only given to us to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So if we become Christians, we're going to suffer as a Christian, uh, some way or some other or other. But it's still the best life that one can live here on this earth. He says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, or uh, a people after his own possession, one translation says, a peculiar people, zealous of good works. But notice we are to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Uh, and as we do that, we are looking for the blessed hope. We are looking to the next world. We are the, uh, the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, and not only that, are we saved for a better life here, but we are saved from the wrath to come. So as we go through this life, living as a Christian, confident of the fact that uh, God makes good all of his promises, confident of the fact that if we continue on our course as faithful unto him, that we'll go to heaven when we die, what a life to live. To live a life of confidence that once the Lord comes back, that we will go to live with him forever. Uh, but, but in doing that, we need to realize that we were saved from something. We're not only saved for something, we're saved to uh, that life with him forever. But we are saved from the wrath to come. I notice in Second Thessalonians uh, 1, 7 through 9, and to, give to, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, whom the Lord Jesus is when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with all mighty angels, with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, uh, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of God, and uh, or the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. That's what we're saved from. <coughs> we're saved from that everlasting punishment that takes us away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So we have a great salvation because of what it does for us and who it is that does it. The great Savior giving us the kind of salvation that makes life better for us here and promises us life to come. And when that life to come comes our way, then we will have been saved also from the wrath of God. And it's great because of its scope. It's to all men everywhere. It's not limited. Uh, that salvation is available to all who will hear it and who will obey it. It's a great salvation. Secondly, the word is spoken. It's a spoken salvation. Uh, he says it first began to be spoken by the Lord 
and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Uh, what is the significance of it being spoken salvation? Well, for one thing, it's not better felt than told. Uh, it's not a salvation that comes to one with, in such a mysterious way that he can't explain it, but knows he has it. And uh, I've talked to many of people who just know that they're saved. How do you know you're saved? I know how I feel about it. Or they'll tell you some experience that they had uh, somewhere out on a road somewhere, how they received this uh, particular feeling or this particular uh, experience. And, but they can't explain it to you. It's better felt than told. Well, the salvation that Jesus offers is a salvation that can be told. It is a spoken salvation. Uh, it relies on the spoken word of the Lord, that, which he first spoke, and then he gave it to his apostles, those that, those that heard him, and they in turn spoke it and wrote it. And we have now they're writing. None of them are here contrary to what the Mormons say about having apostles today. There are no apostles today. We have their written word, but it's still that same word. It's the spoken, written word of God. And we have that, to, uh, and that was one of the things that makes their salvation uh, great. But also, it's a, we have it so that we can be assured of our salvation. Uh, in John chapter 12 and verse 48, uh, Jesus said, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Beloved, when the last day comes, you'll not be judged by that mysterious feeling you have in your heart. And you'll not be judged by some experience that you may have thought you had out on the dark road somewhere you'll be judged by the word that the Lord has spoken. And that word which is spoken is the word which was first spoken by him. And then it was given to his uh, chosen uh, apostles. And they in turn pass it on to us. And we have it uh, in their written word. But he says that word will judge you in the last day. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 Seeing ye are, have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again, verse 23, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the Word of God. You're born again by the Word of God. Not born again of some sort of mysterious experience. Not born again by something that I might think is a sure sign that I'm a Christian. We're born again by the Word of God. That just simply means by following the instructions of the Word. Uh, then we're born again. When we, we're born again when we're made a new creature. And we're made a new creature again when we obey the Word. But he says by uh, the Word by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And if you have any doubt about what word he's talking about, just drop down to verse 25 of that reading. Down in verse 25, the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. 
so that word by which we are born again is the word of which by the gospel is preached unto you. Is that word first spoken by the Lord, confirmed unto us by them that heard him. That's the gospel. And so you have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, but by that word of God. And that word of God is the New Testament word. This is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Uh, so we have his word on my salvation. How do you know you're saved? I have his word on it. I can trust him. I, I sometimes can't trust my feelings. And sometimes I can't uh, trust some experience. I might have a, uh, a funny feeling inside. A young man was talking to my oldest daughter. Of course, those are know my daughter Vicky. She's very shy about saying what she thinks anyway. Uh, but she was uh, in high school and she had a friend she was trying to teach him a little bit. And she never could get him off of this idea that uh, he had had this experience and he said, how he knew he saved, he had this feeling, told exactly where it was and when it was, and said, I never had that feeling before. And said, I know that was it. And then he asked her the wrong question. He said, did you not ever have any kind of feeling like that? She said, yes. Uh, indigestion said Tom took care of it uh, uh, but the, the uh, experience or the subjective uh, idea that by my experience or by my uh, what I think about it in my heart is proof of my salvation is not biblical how can I be sure of my salvation I'm really sure of my salvation because I have God's word for it. I have the word of the Savior for it, uh, that spoken uh, word. So we have his word on our salvation when he says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I believe it. I believe if I'm, I'm a believer I'm, uh, and baptized I'll be saved. And he that believeth not shall be damned. And I have his word also of the assurance of heaven. John 14 and verse 12 in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you. And then there are other passages as well. So it's a spoken word. It's in words. It's explained to us. And we can trust it. Uh, what the Bible says about our salvation, whatever condition we're in, if we've never been a Christian, or we have been a Christian and need forgiveness of sin, then the words there for us to obey in order to meet the conditions of salvation. Thirdly, it is also said to be a salvation that was confirmed. It's a confirmed salvation. It was confirmed by inspired spokesmen uh, who claim to be inspired and they claimed uh, inspired guidance. We're talking about the apostles. They claim to have uh, this Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised them. And they, along with the Apostle Paul later, who was a, an apostle out of due uh, season, uh, they all had inspiration uh, by the Holy Spirit. And they claimed that, but here's the problem. Anybody can make a claim. Anybody can make an inward claim. I could 
there are a lot of people in hospitals today that are claiming they're Jesus Christ. But anybody can make a claim. Or a person can claim, I'm an apostle. Well, when they made that claim, at first, it's just a claim. It's a subjective claim. And uh, anybody can make the claim. That's the trouble with claims of that nature. So they claimed inspired guidance. Paul won, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandment of the Lord. But he still claims that. Well, what proof do you have of it? It has to be confirmed by some objective proof that's outside of the person who's making the claim. Because, as I said, any one of us here could make a claim of receiving messages from God. Sometimes I hear preachers talk about they don't have to study. Uh, that would be good, wouldn't it? Uh, that you don't, don't have to study. Uh, that God just tells them speaks to them and tells them what they, he wants them to know. Well, pardon me if I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Because there's no proof of that. Anybody could get, uh, get up and prove it. But these apostles that claimed that, they offered objective proof. But before that, the Lord himself had also claimed to be divine. He claimed to be the Son of God. And that too was just a subjective claim without proof without the proof coming if you had the, if you didn't have the proof it would just be a claim you could take it or leave it you couldn't prove it one way or the other but both Christ and the apostles proved theirs or God working in them proved their claims by offering objective evidence for their subjective claim and in the case of the Lord, look at Matthew chapter 9. This is a passage that shows us how it is that uh, the word was confirmed. We talk about how that uh, the apostles preached the gospel and they had the, the word confirmed. Well, this is how the confirmation took place with Christ and the apostles. In verse 1 of Matthew 9, it says, And he entered into a ship, and passed over and came to his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Uh, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and wherefore uh, think ye, he, he said, Wherefore, thank ye evil in your hearts. For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. Now notice what the uh, critics were saying. They were saying that Jesus blasphemed. Why would they say that he blasphemed? They said he blasphemed because he was taking on the prerogative of God. And he was not God. And so he was claiming to have the power on earth to forgive sin. Well, again, that too was an objective claim that you couldn't see. It was a claim on his part, I have the power to forgive sins. Well, how do I know you've got the power? To, uh, well, here's the thing about the Lord. 
the Lord never expects anybody to accept anything without objective proof. And so he gives the objective proof here. He says, uh, And whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. Well, the truth of the matter is, it's easy to say one is his other. But he said, But he that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the sick of palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go to thine house. And he rose and departed to his house. But then, but when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. He says, Your sins be forgiven. Well, so what? Anybody can say that. Well, Jesus says, it's just easy to say something else. I say, take up your bed and walk. Well, the man took up his bed. They could see the man take his bed up. They could see him walk off with it. And he was a man who was sick of all. Healed on the spot. Well, was the objective to just put on the demonstration to show that he had a lot of power? Not necessarily. What his objective was, was to verify the claim that he made. They would have something that they could put their hands on, their fingers on, and say this is proof that he has the power to forgive sins. If he has the power to do this, he must have the power to forgive sins. He must be God in the flesh. And so that's how it was confirmed. And when, if you notice when the apostles went forth, they confirmed the word with miracles. They went forward uh, telling them they had this message concerning Jesus Christ. But again, they, didn't, they couldn't go to the objective proof that we have that we'll talk about in just a minute, which is the Scripture. Uh, they couldn't go to that because it's in the process of being revealed. Uh, so they had to have something they could go to when they were going out and preaching God's plan of salvation to folks. And what could they appeal to? And to show that they were speaking for God. Simple enough. He confirmed it with signs following with miracles, and when they performed the miracles, that proved that what they claimed to uh, be doing and to be preaching was indeed from God. So it was confirmed now, though, by the inspired book. We have the, their finished product. We have their written word. And so if somebody wants us to give objective proof of what we say from the pulpit or anywhere else about uh, salvation from sin, we have objective proof. We don't ask them to take it on my word. And don't uh, just take when I tell you that you can be saved this way or you can be saved that way. Anybody could give you a, a formula by which to be saved, but you've got to verify that formula. Well, how do you verify it? Now you verify it by going to the written word. You go to the word that's already been uh, given to inspired men and confirmed by the miracles which they did. And that is the objective evidence that we have, book, chapter, and verse. And that's the reason we need to continuously uh, give book, chapter, and verse for that which we uh, preach uh, in religion. So uh, this inspired book was written by inspired men. It was self-evidently miraculous. Uh, you look at the book. Uh, the entire Bible is 66 books. You've got 37 in the Old Testament, uh, uh, not uh, 37, you've got 66 in all, and you've got uh, 27 in the New Testament, and then you have the Old Testament uh, as well. But I want to talk about the 66 books as a whole. Uh, 
let's look at that a minute and we see it self-evidently inspired. It was written by 40 men, about 40 men, over a period of about 14 or 1500 years. In various parts of the country, men of various educational level, men of various uh, occupational uh, pursuits, men who were different from one or other as daylight is from dark as far as their uh, social backgrounds concerned. Then they wrote their part of the book. We don't have, it's been put into one book now, but it was just a matter of 66 documents, 39 of the old, 27 of the new. And you have all 66 of them, 66 books, uh, over that period of time. And you look at each one of them, of them and they're complete book within themselves. Yet, they blend in with others to make a whole. And I've compared it to this, and this is not original with me, but I found it somewhere in the best illustrations of something you borrowed anyway. But somewhere I read it. Suppose that you had on this wall here, you had a mural, a beautiful picture, a waterfall. I say waterfall because that's my favorite pictures. Uh, you had that wonderful wa waterfall, the water coming down and going over the wheel and uh, of the mill and then on down into the lake and so on. Beautiful picture. But you got to looking at it real closely. And you realize that that's not, a, well, not originally one piece. You look at it and each one of those strips within itself could make a picture. But when you take all 66 of them together and they make a waterfall, beautiful mural, just happened. It just happened. Wasn't it, it, it amazing how they could gather those pieces of strips from artists over a period of 1,500 years, painters who had very little knowledge of each other, and then at some time or other, bring it all together, paste it on the wall, and you've got that beautiful, beautiful waterfall. That's when I say the Bible is self-evidently inspired, and uh, you can give no other explanation for it. But anyway, self-evidently inspired, and it was confirmed unto us, and, and first spoken by the Lord. But I have to hasten on. The fourth word that we want to emphasize, that it is eternal in nature. It is eternal. Eternal in the world to come. Mark the 10th chapter in verse 30. He says, uh, but he shall receive in a hundredfold. Talking about the person who has left father and mother and brothers and sisters and so forth. It says, uh, he shall receive a hundredfold in the 30th verse of 10 of Mark. Uh, this time houses, this time houses, brethren, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions. But you got all these good things going for you if you've given up even family and friends for the Lord. You'll receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brethren, sisters, mothers, and children. Now I've got mothers and sisters and brothers all over the country not related to me by blood, 
but related to him in Christ. Get all, got all that in this, uh, this world. But of course he says with persecutions, you're going to have that too. But he says, in the world to come, eternal life. The eternal salvation is in the world to come. But we head toward that when we're saved initially from our past sins. Uh, Romans 13, 11 says that our salvation is nearer than when we believed. Well, weren't they already saved? Yes. They were saved in the sense they were saved from their past sins. But the salvation they were nearer to would be that eternal salvation that comes after this life is over. And that salvation begins with our forgiveness initially when we become Christians, like I pointed out in Acts 2.38. But it is completed with our final glorification in heaven at, after death has come our way. In Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. So we have salvation starting when we obey the gospel. And when we first obey, we're saved from our past sins and saved to this kind of life that he would have us to uh, live and receive all the benefits of this life uh, and have the hope of eternal life. But then it's finally consummated when this life is over and we receive the crown of life. And that brings us to another uh, word or another idea, and that it is conditional. Uh, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? If it can be neglected, then it's conditional. Think about it. If you can neglect salvation, it's conditional salvation. It is, we can not heed to it. We can leave it alone. We can do a number, number of things with it. The salvation is still there for us, but it's conditional on our response to it. It's, uh, it's often neglected by those who are alien sinners, as we suggested a minute ago. You know, when uh, Paul, before he was baptized, and just before he was baptized, was asked, why tarriest thou? Why do you wait? What uh, Ananias was telling him, don't neglect it. Don't put it off. Why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized. Why did it was so important that he not tarry? Because he needs his sins taken away. He'd been a sinner. All sinners sin that he had need to be taken away. So he didn't need to neglect that. It's something that he didn't need to put off. Uh, and the salvation is such that it can be neglected. We are free agents still. God does not take away our free agency. That is, we have the freedom to choose. We can choose between right and wrong. We can choose between the good and the bad. And we can choose between our destinies, heaven or hell but it's conditional, our salvation. And so he says to him, uh, why do you tarry? Why tarryest thou? Rise, be baptized. And Felix, the governor, said, uh, after he'd heard the gospel, he'd heard it preached uh, by the apostle Paul, and Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. In Acts 24, 25, Felix trembled. Now, that's, it got serious with him. He heard about righteousness, 
temperance or self-control and the judgment to come. And reading of the lifestyle of Felix, if anybody ever needed to be reasoned with about those things, he did. Uh, he was very intemperate. He uh, had no self-control. Uh, he was known for a lot of excessive writing and excessive ungodliness. But anyway, uh, it had such effect on him that he trembled. But he answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for thee. I wish I could read the verse where it says that he called for him. And he was saved. He got that close. He got so close that he trembled. But not close enough to do it. He said, you go your way for this time. When I have a convenient, he may have thought he'd have a convenient season. He might have had his hands full uh, on the job he had at the time. And he might have thought he'd have a convenient season. But if he ever did, the Lord didn't see fit to record it. We don't have it. And not only can be neglected by initially by those who are approached with the gospel, it can be neglected by Christians. Christians can neglect their salvation just as well. Notice again in the wording of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. How shall we... Now this was written to Christians. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation, the we there indicates it was written to Christians by a Christian. So how are we going to escape if we neglect it? So a person who is a Christian can neglect his salvation. And the reason for that is because even his eternal salvation is conditional. When one is forgiven of his sins initially, he is not forgiven of all sins past, present, and future, as some say. But he was forgiven of past sin. And now, uh, he's on his way toward eternal salvation. But that eternal salvation is conditioned on continually obeying him. Uh, Hebrews 5, 9 again. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. I cannot see to save my life. How a person can say, as I said last night, I'll repeat myself a little bit, but I said last night, how a person can say that you can, uh, if you want to magnify the Lord and magnify his grace, you need to play down obedience. You need to de-emphasize obedience. I can't see my life how you can get from that from a pastor like this. He's the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. It's essential that we obey him. It's essential that we receive that grace. But it's received by those who obey him. Uh, and then in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, Take heed, brethren, talking to his fellow Christians, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, in departing from the living God. Now a person says if a person goes away and he falls away, that just means he never was saved. Well, th that won't do. This passage says, Brethren, lest there be an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now I'm not very smart, but I know that you can't depart from where you haven't been. And he says you're departing from the living God. 
You need to take heed, lest there be an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. But he says, exhort one another, encourage one another daily, while it's called a day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And because eternal life is conditional, that's the reason we need to continually uh, exhort one another daily, lest they become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Not only is it deceitful, but it's hardened in two. And as long as one neglects uh, obedience, one, as long as one remains in sin and persists in sin, the harder his heart's going to become because it's deceitful and it's hardening. So he says, you take heed, lest any of you have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So he goes on to say, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. There's your condition. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. If we're steadfast to the end, we will be saved. While it said, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation for some, uh, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit, not all that came out of uh, Egypt by Moses. And he goes on to point out how they grieved the Lord for 40 years in the wilderness before they went into the Canaan land. Evil heart of unbelief in departing from. So that uh, salvation is conditional and we can lose it if we do not stay steadfast with the Lord. Really the question comes down to this. Is Jesus the author of your salvation? You could say yes in a sense. He's the author of salvation for every man. But as far as practically speaking, that he's only the author of the salvation to all them that obey him. It's available to all men, but all who obey him are the ones who are going to receive that salvation. And then, after having been saved, how about the present? Are you neglecting that salvation? Are you steadfastly pursuing the goal to get to heaven when you die? We have a wonderful Savior in Jesus Christ our Lord, and he's the author of our salvation. He originates and he brings it about. All glory and praise goes to him, but I still have to obey him. He's the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. If you're here tonight and you've not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, you have yet to have your sins washed away by the blood of Christ in baptism and been raised to walk a new life, then why not tonight? Why not this very evening? Uh, come and be re repenting of your sins and confess the name of Christ and be baptized for the remission of those sins and be able to rise, rise from that baptism to walk in a new life. Yes, there will be difficulties in the future. It won't solve all your problems in this world, but it'll make it where you can tolerate and make you cope with what you have to face in this world and have your mind set on escaping this world into the next world through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or if you're here and you've been, uh, accepted the Lord in invitation in any way, you come while we stand, while we sing the song.